Hello everyone and welcome to Staying Connected, the podcast series produced by the German Embassy in London. I'm Katharina Delling and I'm a UK correspondent for RTL, which is a private German broadcaster. And I also have my own podcast and it's called English Breakfast, in which my colleague and I, we basically discuss all things British, from the crazy things to the politics, sometimes they're the same. With me here today is John Kampfner. Hi, John. Hi. Welcome. Hi. <laughs> Thank you for joining me. Great pleasure. For anyone who doesn't know you. I'm just going to introduce you a little bit. And I have to read this because you've done so much. You're an award-winning author, a broadcaster and foreign affairs commentator. You were a foreign correspondent for the Daily Telegraph in Berlin when the wall fell, which is very interesting. East Berlin. East Berlin. East Berlin. Exactly. You worked in Moscow, worked for the BBC, the Financial Times, the Guardians, and also on top of that, you've written seven books. One of them is called Why the Germans Do It Better. And we're also going to talk about that a little bit. And then the latest book that is coming out is called In Search of Berlin. And I thought maybe we can start with that a sure. little bit. When I go back to Germany, especially if I've been here for a very long time, I always kind of get a little bit of culture shock. It's like, I don't know how to be German anymore. It's a very strange thing that happens. So I was wondering, since you lived in Berlin for a very long time, when you came back, did you feel the same? Well, I've always, I've had a slightly weird existence, certainly in the last five years with Berlin. I basically commuted between Berlin and London. So I've never been out of the other one enough of the time, apart from various lockdowns during the pandemic, to really feel out of touch with the other. There's always a basic rule, which is I'm always in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. You know, whenever something's <laughs> happening in London, I'm in Berlin and vice versa. So no, in a way, it's a different experience. It's kind of tracking both cities at the same time. Um, I have been, it must be said, certainly in the last two or three years, quite Berlinocentric. Um, the first few years I was out and about all over Germany, much more when I was writing and researching why the Germans. Mm. This one, the, the Berlin history book, um, I made various trips, quite a few trips in fact, in the Brandenburg surrounding area, the, the Umland, the, the wonderfully entitled um, Speckgürtel, you know, yeah. which Brits find that <laughs> hilarious, the bacon belt, you know, the commuter belt. Um, but basically, I have been a Berliner for, for, for too long, for long. <laughs> Actually, it's never too long. <laughs> but like even during the um, pandemic, like because, you know, a lot changed in both countries. Are there things that kind of you felt have changed more in Germany than they might have changed here? I mean, certain trends are similar and they're similar, not just in Britain and Germany. They're similar everywhere. I mean, the, the one big thing that everybody has taken away from the pandemic in terms of the way we lead our lives is a different approach to the workplace. And that's happened everywhere in the world, pretty much. Um, beyond that, I mean, the Germans were, the pandemic went in different phases and the approach of the German lender was different as, as befits the country and the way it is much less centralized than the UK is and France is and other countries. But by and large, Germany, in my view, took a much more holistic, a much more grown-up, which is the adjective I use time and again when it comes to Germany, juxtaposing it to Britain, certainly during that period, uh, approach than Britain. I remember being in the town of Duisburg, which is a pretty poor town. You could compare it to somewhere like Rotherham or Rochdale or whatever, the sort of Wurgebiet and its various parts of, of Northern England. And just the extent to which things were so much better organized than they were in Britain during the pandemic. But then that was slightly reversed by, I think, by and large, the, the luck that the Brits had of, of having the Oxford vaccine yeah. and rolling it out more quickly. And I was incredibly lucky when I published Why the Germans Do It Better. It was 
at the end of August, beginning of September 2020, when on the Today programme, the, the, the main morning uh, show here, as, as people know, the second question any government minister was always asked was, why can't we just do it like the Germans? <laughs> and so it was very much, it fell into that slightly unfortunate rubric. Had I published it in February of March of 2021, when the Germans were really tearing their hair out, and they could have done a deal earlier with the French and with the Dutch to have mm. an earlier vaccine, but didn't in the spirit of European solidarity and nobody was having was getting the vaccine. But by two or three months later, after that period, it had all equaled itself out again. Yeah, I'm from Hamburg and I, you might know this living in Berlin. There's a bit of a rivalry between the big cities <laughs> in Germany. Is, yeah. um, I'm just going to say I love Berlin. I think I'm allowed to say it still. It's just because, you know, you step into Berlin and it's like you feel the history. It's like so interesting. But then you also got the grungy side. You've got the techno side. You've got like so much going on. How do they do that? <laughs> how do they how can they be so cool and have so much history? And how do all of these things come together? Or are they kind of dependent on each other? Well, in my sort of grading of favorite German cities, and I'm probably going to offend all kinds of people <laughs> listening to this, I would have Berlin far and away as number one then I would definitely have Hamburg as my second. I also like Harry Kane, like um, enjoy Munich. Um, although on a completely, <laughs> That's even worse, Berlin is fine. <laughs> on a completely different plane. I spent two years in Bonn and um, terribly sorry to, to you Bonners and, and, and Rhinelanders and whatever. I always found that somewhat difficult, somewhat quiet and somewhat slow. But um, Berlin is just an extraordinary city. Some of that is the result of earlier history, and of course so much of it is, is the history that we know about. First World War, reparations, total poverty and decadence at the same time. Uh, there then followed the Nazis, the Nazi era, war destruction, division. And so my final chapter in the book, Fast Forwarding, is called The Fear of the Normal. And it's asking, is Berlin now? A normal city? Is it becoming a normal city? What actually is normal? And even if we could define what normal is, does it actually want to be normal? It has an incredible mojo and attraction and unique selling point by being just very different to the much more conventional global or European capitals or big cities. Yeah, I think if you speak to people in Berlin, they do not want to be normal. <laughs> well, it depends who you speak to. I mean, there's this whole influx now. I mean, a third of Berliners now, you know, the, the Schwaben, you know, the, the mm. basically the out-of-towners, just call them Swabians, whether or not they're sort of Americans or from, like, you know, from, from Hamburg or whatever, just everybody's called Swabian. Um, the out-of-towners, I mean, a third of Berlin's population now was not there when the wall came down. Mm. It is a hugely transforming population for good and traditionalists would say for ill as well. It is becoming more of a conventional city. The prices, house prices, flat rentals are becoming so. The whole approach to so much of nightlife is becoming much less risque than it was. Is that a good thing or not? I mean, there's certainly a huge amount of Berlin that is absolutely not normal. I mean, where I used to live um, in the incredibly beautiful area um, called Bergmannkiez, so mm -hmm. between Kreuzberg and Tempelhof, and it's the area which has cobbled streets and there's a lot of 19th century costume drama, TV and film uh, and movie filming that goes on there, uh, sort of Bloomsbury of um, which happens to be where I live in London, of, um, uh, of Berlin. But literally behind it, as Berliners and those familiar with Berlin know, 
is the extraordinary Tempelhof Airport. And where would, which other city in the world, literally which other city in the world, would countenance a situation in which you have this enormous flat area, the size of Monaco, which is completely empty. There is nothing going on there. I mean, there are different art exhibitions and installations and the police have a riot training centre and there's a small uh, refugee migrant centre and that kind of thing. But it's a combination of asphalted runways where the Americans and then subsequently commercial airliners used to fly in from. It's got this incredible heritage from being the parade ground of the electors and the kings and the kaisers Mm -hmm. and then it became a parade ground for the Nazis. Then it became the place where the Berlin blockade um, was fought against, where where the Berlin airlift um, took off uh, from. So it's got extraordinary history. And now it's just empty land, tarmac and grass, where particularly in the summer, people just hang out. They have barbecues, they go rollerblading, they go cycling, they do everything. Now, legend has it, although I haven't seen it myself, that there's a man who walks his sheep on it, a single really? sheep, a single sheep. Yeah, I, I've certainly read this in so many places. It could be one of those I great urban myths, <laughs> but you know, and you know, ever so carefully, Berlin City Council came up, what eight, ten years or so ago, with a plan that would convert only about a third of the land into housing, which is so desperately needed in Berlin, and all the locals in a referendum said absolutely no way. And so you just still have this amazing hangout land. And, you know, can you imagine having that in in London? Absolutely not. (laughs) When I talk to people about Berlin, it's often, well, some just absolutely love it. And then some say, "Mm, maybe it's not for me. And then the critique is often, you know, you have to be everything all the time. Like you have to be different. You have to be interested, interesting, like you're outspoken. You know, you have to care about things. Like it's a lot of work being in Berlin. It's not a work trying to be cool, whether you succeed <laughs> exactly. or not, yeah. Do you think, I mean, maybe this is me as a hamburger asking, but like, do you think Berlin might be too cool? Well, apparently the coolest place in Germany now is Leipzig. Oh, that's true, actually, with yeah. Its, with its nickname Heipzig. Um, and that's where all the, the, art, the art scene yeah. has gone to. So Berlin is regarded generally as less cool than it used to be. But it is still... I mean, the curiosity of Berlin, and this is the thing that absolutely will ensure that it doesn't become normal for some time, is that there is very, very little economic production. Yeah. In complete contrast to the one era when Berlin was a Weltstadt, a world city, roughly speaking, between the first unification in 1871 and the outbreak of the First World War. And then you had everything in Berlin that a conventional global city has. You have um, politics, economics, finance, industry, culture, media, science, everything in this in this one place. And then we know that the history and, and that didn't pertain anymore. You have almost no companies. You have representative offices that do political lobbying. But almost there is almost no economic production at all in Berlin, with two exceptions. The startup scene, the tech scene, which is doing pretty well, but it's still fairly small compared to others, but it is pretty cool and there's quite a lot of interesting stuff going on. And an interesting 
burgeoning biotech uh, health scene around um, the Charité and the Robert Koch mm -hmm. Institute, particularly, and that absolutely grew during the pandemic. But if you take those two things aside, you've got two very large universities, you've got a massive political scene and with it a certain media scene, although a lot of media headquarters, editorial offices are still in Hamburg as are publishing houses. That was one of the, the Brit, um, as people know, during uh, straight after the war, the different three occupying allies sort of split things up, but they also split up jurisdiction. The Brits basically took over the media oversight and so much of that was in the British zone, hence Hamburg. So you basically got this population of three and a half million people, which is still, by the way, smaller than it was at its peak, notwithstanding the housing crisis of now, smaller than the just before the start of the Second World War of four million. So you've got three and a half million people, almost none of whom actually do a proper job. <laughs> no, no, I exaggerate a fair bit. And that really makes for quite a strange yeah. old city. Yeah, especially being the capital. <laughs> well, exactly. And right up until two or three years ago, I can't remember the exact point at which it flipped, Germany and Berlin had the almost unique occurrence of the per capita GDP of the inhabitants of the capital city was lower than the national average. Mm. Now, can you imagine that London, you know, super yeah. wealthy London, super wealthy Paris, New York isn't a capital, obviously, but super wealthy New York, Madrid, you can think of that, think of sort of Moscow and compare that with, with the terrible living standards elsewhere in, in Russia and elsewhere. You could continue that all pretty much through most countries, um, Rome and Milan, and compare that with other parts of Italy. So you just have this island, as it was, of course, during the Cold War, at least West Berlin was, in which nothing much happened. Everybody just hung out. And, but, you know, that's what gave it <laughs> its atmosphere. In Why the Germans Do It Better, you basically say that when you said you were going to write this book, Germans came up to you like, you can't do that. That's like, really schreiben. No. It's, like, it's not okay. Like, we, like, yeah. we don't like to brag about a country. You know, we don't like if anyone else does it. Um, and that's definitely true. But then on the other hand, you have Germans going abroad on holiday and they immediately like start pointing out what's what doesn't work as well as it would in Germany, even though it's not true. But there's mm. like a feeling when when Germans travel, it's like this bus would have been here five minutes ago, even though it probably wouldn't. Have wouldn't yeah, well, I'm, yeah, try getting a, you know, the, the great <laughs> thing about trying getting a train nowadays in Germany. Actually, I don't encounter that much of the latter. I encounter endless, in fact, really annoying amounts of the former. And I do say to my German friends, name me one year, one month since 1945, in which you or any single German will ever have said, yeah, things are going quite well, actually. <laughs> They just don't do it. It can right? always be better. It could always <laughs> be better. In fact, the glass is always half empty well, in Germany. You as know, opposed if to you don't thought. push yourself. <laughs> well, which is a good thing. I mean, I think self-criticism is one of the great traits. And when I'm asked to justify my thesis, I talk about two things. I talk about self-criticism and I talk about seriousness. The flip side of self-criticism is self-flagellation, which goes on an inordinate amount in Germany. And I regard that, and this is where I'm critical, and I'm obviously generalizing hugely, where I'm critical of Germany, which is it's almost become a default that you have to do it. And actually, it's an excuse in political terms for stepping up. 
oh, we're so terrible, oh, we're so awful, we can't trust ourselves, you know, give us an inch and we'll take a mile and all of this. It, it's almost become an excuse mm-hmm. uh, that has enabled inaction or, or slowness in the past. Now, Ukraine, Seitenbender completely blew that apart. Whether it's completely knocked that out of the system is moot, but it was the great challenge to this German default about we leave all the hard decisions to others because mm-hmm. we can't trust ourselves because we're so terrible. And by the way, John, how on earth could you be so ridiculous um, as to as to write a book like this because we are so terrible, to which my response was always, well, A, be careful what you wish for and everything is relative. You know, you know, when you come from, you know, Die Insel, which since 2016 has not been at its best, it's not been a very difficult book to write. I mean, but at the same time, you say like the slow and steadiness of like the politics within Germany is basically what's making it great and like in in making decisions and like thinking about it and then doing it. But then when we look at Ukraine, mm. like that's something where it kind of went wrong. Yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, slowness isn't necessarily a good thing. Steadiness, langsam aber sicher, the yeah. sicher bit is is the good bit. Deliberativeness is a good thing if you've got the time. Now, obviously, some decisions have to be made absolutely in a matter of minutes uh, or at least hours. So deliberativeness is the is, is a very good thing. The other aspect that I always regard as, as a positive for Germany is not regarding politics as entertainment. Mm. You can become a successful politician by being a good committee member, by being very solid. You, the whole parliamentary process is not based around rhetorical, performative politics. You don't have to be charming or... <laughs> well, you don't have to come up with a great one-liner yeah, and the Punch performer. and Judy knockdown, which yeah. you get. And it's interesting, you now have in Britain, and whatever the criticisms uh, that may be made of, of Rishi Sunak, he very much fits into the, I would argue, the model of a conventional, reliable, unflamboyant politician, as very obviously so does Keir Starmer. Mm-hmm. And my many journalist friends in, in the lobby in Westminster are tearing their hair out, saying, oh my God, this Prime Minister's questions, it's so boring. They don't do these sort of theatrical one-liners, to which my response is, yeah, and your problem is, you know, just go and, you know, go and do some proper journalism and, and you know, this Make isn't... politics entertaining. Yeah, yet. I mean, this isn't, you know, I used to always say with regard to Boris Johnson, if you want a clown, go to the circus, you know. In other words, if you want sensible politics, you know, that is surely the bedrock of, of good decision-making. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the German way to just focus on the one thing. There is a flip, actually, of that, which is the extraordinary difficulty or unwillingness of the present Chancellor Olaf Scholz to communicate. He is just really unable or unwilling, and I'm never quite sure which one it is, to present what he is trying to do in a way that people will understand, get on the front foot. Now, that isn't performative politics. That isn't sort of Johnsonian silliness. To me, that is a really important aspect of politics, that you are able to communicate and communicate early and quickly in a way that people understand. Um, and at least they can they may disagree with you, but they see your direction of travel. They see the difficulties, the sacrifices, the compromises that have to be made. 
in a way that Angela Merkel, although she wasn't a flamboyant figure, she was absolutely brilliant at communicating. Yeah. Uh, sometimes she just did it with her eyes or her body language, famously. She didn't even need to say that many things. And Schultz really struggles in that regard. And so that's where that side of, of performative politics, particularly when it comes to explaining yourself, is incredibly important. I always wonder um, if it is that he just doesn't want to do it or if he just can't. When he was mayor of Hamburg, I was still working in Hamburg. And so we did like this big piece about 120 years of the Rathaus. And it was like, oh, this is great. Look at all these rooms and look, this is where this happens. And mm. it was very nice. And then in the end, we interviewed him as well. And it was basically about like, oh, first time you sat down on this like big chair, like there's a sort of ceremonial chair, like where they sit and meet. Like, how was that for you? And he just couldn't tell me. <laughs> mm. It was, was like, this is a very so easy, you know, yeah. just see how you feel. Just tell me. This is a very positive thing. So that's you not can't the burdens of office being, in the, being the chancellor. Yeah. It was like that before. Yeah. No, I, I, I think you're right. And I do think it's problematic. I mean, for example, Germany's military contribution to Ukraine has far surpassed that of France's. And I'm not saying that to score points. I'm just saying that as a fact. And it has now surpassed the UK's although Germany was, was slow to get off the ground. And yet, and things have definitely improved in the German-Ukrainian relationship, but still, it's quite a cool one. And Let's talk a bit about the present. There were just elections in Hessen and in Bavaria. For anyone who doesn't know, the far-right party, the AFD, got in Hessen like 18.4%, second largest party. In Bavaria, it was 14.6%, third largest party. You said in your book that kind of it's kind of Germany's time to take the lead and like to help prevent exactly these things happening around the world. How can Germany do that when they kind of have to focus on themselves there? Well, first things first, when Merkel took the decision to let in the one million plus refugees from Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq and elsewhere in 2015, it was an act of extraordinary political courage sensitivity, foresight, uh, morality, and everything else. She and the party paid for it in terms of the rise of the AFD. It's moot whether it was a contributing factor to Brexit and all this sort of thing. But she actually had no choice. Um, you know, as she said on one TV show, what do you expect me as a German to do, to build camps and not let people in? You know, it was, it was a non-starter. But nevertheless, Germany did it. And that those one million were extraordinarily well assimilated. I was doing a BBC documentary a couple of years ago on this, and I was in Stuttgart interviewing a whole bunch of refugees, and they were not self-selected, but and they were younger, but the vast majority were either had a job or were on a training scheme, and a, and a proper training scheme as well. They encountered, they said, racism on the U-Bahn or on the bus or this or that, but pretty sort of sadly standard stuff that you would encounter in many places, but by and large, it was a success. The AFD went away, and then it has obviously come back now with Avengers. I mean, I do think the single greatest attribute of Germany is its ultra seriousness. You do not have, and I'm being glib here, but I'm being glib for a purpose. You do not have conversations in Berlin dinner parties in the bubble about or maybe I don't go to the right ones, <laughs> about house prices or where you send your kids to school, mm -hmm. right? And by the way, now in Britain, that used to be the, the two conversations in London dinner parties among a certain set. Now the third one is what passport have you got? 
um, you know, it's sort of like, <laughs> it's true, it is sort of get me out of here moment, yeah. which um, there are somewhere between 30 and 40,000 British Brexit refugees, as I call them, in Berlin alone. Now, it's a staggering number of Brits who have moved to, to Berlin and a bigger number who've moved to Germany more generally. But there is a seriousness. Those sorts of conversations I find in Berlin and Germany, and of course I'm generalising, are based much more around politics. They're around politics, around history, might be around economics, around philosophy and, and, and whatever. People would not be so gauche as to talk about money or, or, or that sort of thing. And I think that gives me cause for hope that uh, whatever the difficulties going on now, particularly with the AFD, but also in terms of there's some really deep structural problems that Germany has that we all know about. It's uh, over-reliance on trade with China. Obviously, it's previous over-reliance on energy from Russia. It's over-reliance on America for its defense needs. All of those were... Uh, were and to a certain degree still are structural problems but there is a seriousness and a determination to deal with them and I just do not believe modern Germany would ever have elected anybody like Boris Johnson or Liz Truss and, and that's and that's not an anti-conservative point I was a great fan I mean I'm not a conservative but I was a great fan of John Major I thought he was was uh, and I, you know I know him and I like him and um, now um, and I think Rishi Sunak, whatever you, you know, passionately thought his retreat from some of the environmental stuff was really upsetting and, and shocking. But by and large, he is trying to steady the ship. I, you know, I, I hope that Kistama will win. But I think it, so it's not a question. Any healthy democracy needs governments, sometimes at the centre right and governments sometimes at the centre left and sometimes different variations thereof. But it was the descent away from seriousness that was so upsetting. I think we're getting towards the end of our time. We haven't done that much Berlin. <laughs> we've know, done, we've sorry. done a lot of I got distracted a little bit. For the end, um, the German embassy did um, the survey and it showed that yeah. basically Brits are not very interested in uh, Germany yeah. anymore. So we've obviously, we're very hurt. <laughs> What's going on? Why is that? Um, what can Germany do to get... British people interested again. Right, well, this is where I'm going to unashamedly <laughs> blow my own trumpet. Um, so when, I mean, why the Germans do it better was in 2020 and 2021, one of the best-selling books in this country. And at one point, I was pleased to say, it was one place below Michelle Obama, but one place above Piers Morgan, which I thought is, is the natural is order great. of things. <laughs> it was exactly as it should have been. And it continues to, and it, it was part of a genre, and there are increasing numbers of books, and of course a book isn't a, a huge sort of TV show with millions of people, but um, it is part of a, I think, increasing interest in this country. I think one of the problems we have, we have two, two main problems. One is, and I was tweeting about this earlier, and the embassy was um, citing this as well in one of its tweets, this absolute almost disappearance of German as a language, as a subject being taught in mm. British schools, which not only leads to monolingualism, which is, I think, one of Britain's greatest problems, but also just a lack, if you don't speak a language, you don't engage with the country and, and everything else. And the media that we have now 
pretty much everything on the BBC is, when it comes to international comparisons, is tends to be based around the United States, Australia, Canada, New Zealand. We've become a an Anglo-centric country again. I think there was a brief window in the Blair era before and after where we weren't like that as a country. Mm. Is that a cause or a consequence of Brexit? Who knows? But the flip side of all of that is the number of Brits who are in Germany is big. And the number of Brits who go to Germany, the number of Brits who engage with, with Germany. I think there is a really good news story to tell about relations. I think opinion polls you know, if people are not interested, they'll just say they're not interested. But you don't need that many people to be interested to have actually a really, really vibrant person-to-person -person set of, mm -hmm. of links. And I think if we can sort out some of this Brexit-related structural stuff about um, school trips not being allowed or made incredibly difficult um, and that sort of thing. But... In, in Why the Germans, I, I write about this exhibition that was in Bonn at a time, which was about, it was called Very British, mm -hmm. and it was about Germans' perceptions of Britain. And I would like Germans' perceptions of Britain to slightly move away from kitsch, to move away from endless conversations about the royal family and, and that sort of thing. And... I think well, that's why you had Brexit, right? So we have something else to talk about. Exactly, exactly. But you know, and I think there, there is a really. I mean, you look at the Berlin tech scene; it is full of Brits, and it's full of people of all nationalities and stuff. The Berlin cultural scene has has a large number as well. There is a language, and not a literal language, but there is a there is an interaction between the two countries, which I don't think is really picked up either by the media or by diplomats. And when I, whenever I do, and I do a lot of them, Anglo-German or German-British conferences, it is always the same type of person, the sort of politicians, the diplomats, the think tanks, and that sort of thing. And I think it fails to capture about 95% of what's going on between the two countries. I'm glad we got to the end uh, until we use the B word. Exactly. <laughs> I think. Well, the other B word is Berlin. So go to Berlin, dear <laughs> listeners, if you don't know Berlin well. Thank you very much for coming. This was very interesting. We could talk about this, I think, for another three hours or more. Thank you so much. And thanks to everyone for listening. Thank you for having me.